Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hi, I'm Nadia Fall and I'm Artistic Director of Theatre Royal Stratford East. And I'm Adam Penford, Artistic Director of Nottingham Playhouse. Hi, Adam. Hi, Nadia. <laughs> I was listening back to our first episode with George III and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and we've had a lot of positive feedback. So I'm looking forward to episode three and recording that, which will be Shabin and our first co-production between Nottingham and Stratford, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to recording that conversation as well. And, and I thought the conversation for this episode about King Hedley II that we recorded yesterday, I just found it a really powerful and, and moving conversation, actually. Um, King Hedley II that you directed last year at Stratford East, um, you know, and try and spare your blushes. But I've got to say, I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful production. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and August Wilson, he's one of the greatest writers, isn't he? He's an absolute powerhouse. And I just think I really appreciated um, having that conversation and talking about August's work and legacy and celebrating the play, but also because it falls right in the middle of the movement for Black Lives Matter and that activism. And I think... Um, to recognise the moment we're in and the importance of it. It was really important to have that conversation. Um, yeah, I found it incredibly moving, actually. Absolutely. Set in the 1980s, against the backdrop of Reagan's America, King Hedley II is the ninth play in celebrated playwright August Wilson's epic series of 10 dramas. Dubbed The American Cycle, the plays chronicle African-American lives in the 20th century, from Gem of the Ocean set in the 1900s to Radio Golf set in 1997. Characters often appear and reappear in different plays. King Headley is the son of Headley from the earlier Wilson play Seven Guitars. He's recently been released from prison and returns home to the Pittsburgh's Hill District, a city in decay. Despite all the odds, King is determined to make a better life for himself and for his pregnant wife, Tonya. King has a dream of opening a video store with his best friend, Mister. They plot and plan in the backyard, but are interrogated by King's mother, Ruby, a former jazz singer who has recently returned after being absent for most of King's life. King doesn't want his mother around, but their bickering is interrupted with the arrival of Elmore, a smooth-talking hustler, an old flame of rubies. Their eccentric neighbour, known in the neighbourhood as Stool Pigeon, part preacher, part hoarder of newspapers, warns that there will be a reckoning. The production was described in Time Out as having an intensity and immensity that really underscores the vastness of Wilson's undertaking. We were joined in conversation by three of the actors from the 2018 Theatre Royal Stratford East Revival and two guests from across the Atlantic, straddling three time zones between us. My name is Lenny Henry, I'm an actor and I was in King Headley last year, I played Elmore. I'm Dexter Flanders, actor, and I played Mister. My name's Sherelle Skeet and I played Tanya. And my name is Constanza Romero Wilson, I am the executor of the August Wilson Estate. 
Hi, and I'm Monica White Mdunu. I'm a director and I'm also a Black theatre scholar. It's great to have you all with us. Thank you so much. Nadia, I'm going to kick off with the first question and it's actually to you, it's to the host or the co-host. Okay. Um, so um, you were director of King Hedley II, you're also artistic director of Theatre Royal Stratford East. Um, why did you choose to programme this play in your first season as artistic director? Good question. <laughs> well, I think as an artistic director, your opening season is a statement of intent. It's absolutely to, um, you know, say what it is you love, the work you love, um, the politics you're behind, and your ambition, basically, for the theatre and for its audience. So, I mean, I absolutely love the work, the craft of August Wilson, the language, the storytelling, the fact it's from a black perspective. And I just thought, you know, and the expansiveness of it for a proscenium arts arch stage was was some of the reasons um but also because like our theater's history and legacy is totally a working class theater and a black theater from the 1970s it was one of the first theaters in britain to put on black work and so our audience is like super diverse and i i knew for a fact that loads of our audience had never met august wilson they'd never seen the work and i just thought what a thrill it would be to put on one of the plays and it totally paid off i mean even up to you know recently people come up to me and it's a standout standout play in production that people keep mentioning and re-mentioning and that's why i wanted to i wanted to offer it as the first discussion for this revival um because it's a, a play that i'm really proud of and and it comes at a moment a really really poignant moment where we have to recognize the huge tsunami of pain and anger and activism that's come out of the George Floyd murder. And before him, um, Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, and after him just last Friday with Rashad Brooks and on and on and on it goes. And I just, I really appreciate that we're having this conversation and celebrating the work in that context, basically. So I, I guess I want to ask my first question to Lenny, which is you've starred in two August Wilson plays, King Hedley at Stratford East, but also Fences in the West End. What about the work and August Wilson's um, canon like captivates you and, and draws you in? Well, um... I think the, the experience of working on Fences with an all-black cast uh, in the West End and on tour was an extraordinarily transformative thing for me. I'd never, I mean, I, I'd been in plays before, but this is the first time I'd seen a play where black people and white people were sitting on the edge of their seat, leaning forward and crying almost. And it wasn't at the programme prices or the drinks prices. It was literally <laughs> following the text their mouth open and weeping and I just thought this is something to replicate and I, I want to be in a play that does this anything else seems frivolous and so after Fences which was an extraordinary experience um, Nadia rang me and said you should read King Hedley the second and I, I knew of the play um, but I didn't know the play and I read it and the first thing I th said was damn this is long <laughs> How are we going to do this in one night? This is long. And, uh, I'm still doing it now. I still wake up saying, where Tanya? I'm still in it. I'm still in the play. 
Um, there's people in Stratford who are kind of, they've got PTSD to come out of their plane. That was nine hours long. Um, but what I felt was that August was, seemed to be writing about Black Lives Matter way before the, the, the phrase was coined. This is Black Lives Matter. This is gun crime. This is what are we going to do with our children? How are we going to raise our children in this hostile environment? Um, August was writing about that stuff back then. And when you see, um, when you see Hegley and Mr. trying to figure out a way to survive in this, in this ghetto environment, and the only thing they come up with is get guns and rob a jewellery store, you know, when you see that Hegley has done jail time, he's been part of the incarceration complex, you know, this sense of there's no other way out of this but to steal and rob and to put your life at risk, you know, this is, this is tough, hardcore stuff. And for that audience in Stratford, it was like we were reading the news to them. They understood it. They got it. They understood the character. And, you know, this play is not for everybody. You know, there are arias. There are arias of huge speeches that talk about the experience, the life, the needless deaths, the poverty. Uh, But this play for that audience, oh, my God. After every show, people would stop. You couldn't get home. People wanted to share their experience. And I think that's why it was such an important thing to do in Stratford, because this play was like a hot wire umbilical cord to their soul. They wanted to share the experience. They wanted to tell you what they'd experienced too. And for that, I thank August, because there aren't very many people writing that kind of stuff for performers that look like me and George Floyd. So... That's why I wanted to do it. Constanza, as, as, as Lenny says there, the, the play really resonated <coughs> when it was on in Stratford East. As, as August's um, wife uh, and as executor of his estate, what are you looking for in a revival of one of his plays? What do you hope for? And, and also specifically with this British production, um, was there anything that stood out to you about, about this production? Well, Lenny has just basically described my feelings about the play so beautifully. But <clears throat> what I look for in, um, in the future of August Wilson is, first of all, it's, it, it's, it, I, I want to hand it to future generations of black artists, you know, whether they, be, you know, like August Wilson is even being translated into Spanish. I, I'm doing the translation because it speaks to so many disenfranchised groups. And it, what I would love it to be is to be um, something that's relevant and vital to the world today for new audiences. That, that is what I really want to have happen for, for August Plays. And uh, the Stratford East production of King Hedley II certainly, you know, ticked that box. Uh, you know, what Nadia's in my first conversation about the play was that she was talking about the the rise and the very real problem of knife homicide in um, in Great Britain in London, and uh, uh, the central theme I believe of King Headley is what is the human toll? What is the personal toll on your soul? When you take somebody else's life, how does it weigh on you? And um, 
the uh, it, it as Lenny said, it speaks to disenfranchised, ailing communities, communities that have no other resource, no other choices, but maybe to to rob a jewelry store. Um, and you know, it's amazing to think that August was writing these plays uh, 15 years ago. That's how long it is since he's passed. And I stop, especially right now, what's going on um, with, you know, George Floyd, Richard Brooks. Um, how much has changed in these past 15 years? And I feel sometimes really embarrassed that I can't, you know, look back at August or at least my memory of August and say things have changed for the better. It's, it's, it's really tragic. Um, so I think that Tanya, I think that Nadia did a great job with the production. And uh, as, as Lenny said, it, it just warms my heart what Lenny said about all of those audiences coming to him and talking to him about the show. I'd love to ask Sherelle, um, Tanya has this heart-stopping speech in the play that's famous. <laughs> and she talks about motherhood and the conflict of motherhood and you know, her fears about bringing up uh, another child in such a unjust and violent world. The, the, the text is so dense, so rich. The characterization is so complex. How did you approach the work? Like, if you could talk to us a bit about the process. First of all, scared as hell <laughs> because of that. Um, but then you kind of have to get out of the way and just focus on the words and I literally I had to make a list of, of like, thank you, Nadia. Thank you, Claudette. Thank you, Mina. Thank you, Jeanette. Thank you, Shelley. Um, because it was literally about layering step by step it, in order to really take the words and being able to take each, every single word and being able to have you for every single word. But even down to the fact that, you know, the first thing that's mentioned about Tanya when she walks on stage is the fact that she's wearing yellow blouse. And I thought, okay, brilliant, because we talked about the, the archetypes and the Orishas, and I was like, okay, brilliant, I'm going to go with Oshun, you know, because what I felt like, everything that August talks about is so ancestral, like the moment that we did stuff with, with Shelley was just, and, you know, my, my ancestors are of, um, you know, were enslaved people, so I know that, not to necessarily draw on that, that pain, because that's not necessarily helpful, um, for me sometimes it is sometimes it isn't but to be able to protect myself that was also really important um, because of that ancestral pain that lives within my own cells but to layer it means that I'm using the word words to excavate and to create the memory of Tanya that I feel like exists from for, for me and my mum and my mum's mum and my mum's mum and living in the UK as well um, so <sighs> I think also using using um, music was really, really important. So we talked a lot about the blues. I listened to a lot of Bessie Smith. Um, I listened to gospel music. Just music that just, music just touches the soul and bypasses the mind and intellect and just touches the heart. So yeah, I listened to Mahalia Jackson and Nina Simone, even connecting to where her joy would be. Cause I think that's really important to understand because she goes through so much grief in the play. I had to know where her joy was. And for me, it was like, you know, I came to Yunaji and I was like, she needs to have a fabulous week. 
you know, the first, thing, the first thing that she talks about. No, it's really important. I was like, the first thing she mentions is like, how do I look? That's yeah. the first line that she says when she comes on stage. This is a woman that takes care. She cares about how she looks. Mm. And straight away, I was like, I had so much fun looking at, you know, the, the, the style and, you know, looking at Oprah Winfrey, young Oprah Winfrey, when she was coming up, the Claire Huxtables. And like, this woman has so much desire to... Um, go beyond her current circumstance she's aspiring she she wants to move out of the hood she wants to she wants a better life for her and her partner and her daughter so I was like that you're going to dress for success I mean it's it's why Shaka Khan has the song you know sisters are doing it for themselves I was like I'm looking at the the socio-political times that black women are experiencing and what they're what they're aiming for but also the very personal and real experience that she and a lot of women in that in her neighborhood are experiencing um fantastic a hundred percent masterclass there adam <laughs> my i've got a question for dexter actually um it, it, it struck me watching the play that um that this play like so many of um so much of august wilson's cycle is really about um the unjust criminal justice system and, and, and the criminalization uh, of the black community. Um, so you know, King has just come out of jail. Uh, both Elmore and King have both committed murder. That's one thing that sort of ties them together. Um, and your character, Dexter, Mister, although he denies it early on, there's an insinuation there that he's been uh, violent towards his partner. So just, I wanted to ask you what you thought about those themes. Can you talk to us a bit about it? And also specifically, um, how you approach those themes within the room? One of, one of the most profound things was that, you know, like, um, Nadia brought in um, a couple of guys who had been oh. in prison. Um, and they came in and shared their uh, very uh, personal experience um, for a few hours. And... It was it was interesting just them talking about a similar thing. Often it's quite um, people talk a lot about oh it's so different here it's so different here it's so different here. But there are strong 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 um, immediate parallels. It's just that you sometimes here. UK. You mean here in the UK? Yeah, yeah. Compared to America, right? Yeah. So like when those guys came in and were sharing their experience with us. Um, there were strong parallels to the play and the world of the play and about um, the options that they like the, the options that they felt were afforded to them and, and what they've done and how normal it was and how they'd come through the, um, the prison system and how they've been beat up by police and how a lot of these things and you know these two guys were the success stories um, but the success the success stories unfortunately are not um are not common and um so yeah you know I, i'll be honest with you i didn't really ever get to the place where i completely you know um there's a lot of sort of um trauma from before in life and then through the play and now after the play because it you know like this august wilson's work is my favorite work um and just, just simply because it speaks to pain. And I feel like my life is, I'm, I'm the most comfortable speaking to pain. I've got a question for Monica, really, because um, Monica, you're an artist, a director in your own right, and an academic, and you've studied and worked on August Wilson 
um, so much and right up to um, another playwright. So you uh, recently directed Passover by Antoinette Nwandu and so many of these plays have such raw, brutal truth to them that that can be, um, I guess, very triggering to black actors who have to perform them, uh, these characters and these truths. It's not like, you know, the, you, you act a, a, a difficult world and you go out and the world is all cozy. No, that the world has this brutality and racism and injustice within it. And then for black audiences too, uh, it, that idea of being triggered, is there something in your own work and practice that you've come across or, or done to like tackle some of that? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, first, I have to say again, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Um, Constanza knows, knows I'm a huge fan of August Wilson, and I tell anybody I would not be doing what I do had I not encountered August Wilson's work and also the work of Ntozaki Shanti. Um, so the thing that really drew me to both of their works was the fact that both of these writers somehow in the midst of writing about the pain and trauma of Black experiences, they also talk about the joy and uh, the transcendence of circumstances through a variety of means. And in the structure of their plays, they, there's, um, there's a sense of healing that's built into it that's not necessarily in the work of other art artists. So not everybody writes the way that they do where they seem to understand um, the need for um, a healing balm in order to engage with the pain that's embedded in the stories. And, and that's not to take away from writers who are writing differently, it's just to say there's a distinction. And so in my work, um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm writing a book right now that's called Acting Your Color, The Craft, Power, and Paradox of Acting for Black Americans. And in my research for that book, I've been chronicling the different ways that Black actors have been tackling um, the challenges of acting while Black um, for centuries. And so I go as far back as Ira Aldrich, who you know, you know it, um, has a very long history in the UK as well as in the US and throughout the world. And so within that, just looking at the ways in which they approach different roles, um, specifically roles that deal with stereotyping, and how do they address that um, in the preparation and performance of a role. Now, Nadia, you and I, we had a wonderful conversation leading up to your directing of King Headley. And, um, and I remember that because um, during that time, I was also structuring my process for directing Passover. And I remember we were talking about how one of the things I was really worried about is my actors, because um, even Antoinette, uh, in conversation with her, she says that play is very triggery, and it's intended to be so, and she calls it whiplashy. You know, um, it's supposed to shake you. And my concern is when actors, especially hearing these wonderful artists talk about their process and approach to the roles, it's, um, they have to go so deep into this. They have to touch parts of themselves that you don't want to show to other people. And they not only have to touch that, they have to bring it onto the stage night after night, day after day, um, and in front of people, right? So for me, I like to think about what can I do in my rehearsal room to create a safe space that allows these artists to engage with um, whatever parts of themselves and the characters that they need to in order to tell the story and tell the truth. 
right? And, and sometimes the truth really hurts. And so we work on different ways of how do we heal in the process of creating the story that we're going to tell together. But we're also thinking about how that story is going to touch audiences. And so some things um, like Nadia, you and I talked about like having counseling services available for actors during that process. Um, in our rehearsal room for Passover, we began and did each rehearsal breathing together and just coming together and, um, and connecting. Also recognizing in the rehearsal process when it's too much, when it's time to just stop. There was one point when we were rehearsing, we just stopped and started watching cartoons. Mm. Um, <laughs> because- um, Wait a second, we never did that. <laughs> we danced, we danced. We did like loads of soca. I would have loved cartoons. Yeah, but that was, it was also, it was part of the work, but it was a different approach to it yeah. because we talked about the difference between character and caricature. Right. Because right. that play, it's more absurd in its context. And so right. we just started, we were still working, but we worked with joy, with playfulness. And so just knowing when and how to shift gears. And at the end of every um, performance that we did in front of audiences, we had a healing circle where we actually had a healer that came in and we cleared the space and held space for black and brown people in order to, for them to be able to have a moment together to deal with whatever um, traumas were brought up by their experience of the work. That's incredibly inspiring. I think uh, we need some of your knowledge, quick, smart, <laughs> basically. Adam. Constanza, as Monica uh, just touched on, what is, what is happening in society at the moment, the horrific murder of George Floyd and the subsequent uh, rallying cry uh, against black oppression, and not just stateside where you are, but uh, you know, across the world. Um, do you have any sense of what August would make of this moment in time? I am continuously, you know, for these past 15 years since he's been, he's been gone, I am amazed at how he's still speaking uh, to me and he's still speaking to so many people because he was a real visionary. And uh, I would love to bring this up. I, um, for uh, George Floyd's eulogy, the Reverend Al Sharpton <clears throat> said, <clears throat> God always uses unlikely people to do his bidding. God took the rejected stone. Uh, George Floyd was uh, rejected jobs, opportunities, sports opportunities. He called him the rejected stone. And further, he, the Reverend says, uh, he made him the cornerstone of a movement that will change the world. And <clears throat> August writes about a character in King Hedley II, who is King Hedley II, um, who's very much like George Floyd. Um, <clears throat> he accuses, in, in the play, he accuses Elmore of stepping on the seeds he planted on the same <clears throat> earth he was born. He says, look at that. They were growing. Everybody telling me I need some good dirt. This is good dirt. Look at that. This is good dirt. This, you know, like George Floyd, King Hedley was a rejected stone, but he is saying he has good dirt under his feet. And that speaks about his potential. That speaks about who he could have been 
if the world, in, in a more just world. And as in George Floyd, the character uh, of King Headley is sacrificed. He dies so that the black community can come together again, so that there can be healing. Um, he, uh, George Floyd died, he was sacrificed so that we could fight on, so that we could find some way to, I mean, he, it, it's been an incredible reaction to, you know, it, it's just horrific to see a human life being lost under the, under the knee of a white man, but somehow or other that has catapulted a whole movement. And um, so I, there's no doubt in my mind that August would be championing the efforts and the, and the warriors that are uh, out there on the streets uh, crying Black Lives Matter. And uh, because he always, I, he always knew, you know, we all have the dirt. We are all, there. if there's no justice for one, there's no justice for all. Thank you. I mean, I guess um, going on from that, Monica, on the ground in the States, um, what, what have you observed from um, black artists at this moment? And, and what do you think, what are your fears for black theatre from now on? I think we spoke a little bit about that in the past. So could you talk to us about what you see? In the States, I would say, um, last night I, I moderated a, an event called Con Converging Pandemics, Black Life in a State of Emergency. And what we're looking at right now is the convergence of the disproportionate impact of the coronavirus, COVID-19, on Black and Brown communities. Like our, our um, health is under attack, and so are our lives um, by police brutality and other forms of systemic racism. And so what you have right now, I won't even call it an awakening. It's just like a, a realization that this fight is not going to stop. There's a determination um, in folks on multiple levels. So we have people coming together to fight for um, the individual specific lives of Black people, but also for our work as artists and our space um, as uh, for Black institutions, specifically Black theaters, which were in dire straits, many of them, before this happened, the economic impact that um, COVID was having on a theater industry, and mm -hmm. it's the impact that it's having on, on Black theaters and theaters um, of um, people of the global majority, which is the term I use instead of people of color now. <laughs> um, but th those are very real concerns, and so, People are mobilizing and fighting on multiple levels. We're fighting in education. We're fighting mass incarceration. We are fighting in the healthcare system. We are fighting for our children. We are fighting for every aspect of our lives because the realization is none of this is going away unless we make it go away. And um, I'm really heartened to see the support from around the globe. We've seen the marches in the UK. We have seen the marches um, throughout Europe, uh, Africa, around the world. And so we are hoping that this will be a global movement of justice for people of African descent. Thanks, Monica. Um, Sherelle, as Monica said there, um, 
it, right now, she's she, using the term global majority, which is an incredibly powerful term and has real agency over other terms, such as people of colour. You, you yourself um, co-founded Black Trust UK, uh, I, th I think in 2017, um, which is, uh, I think, a network or a support group for uh, black female actors. Um, can you tell us just a, a little bit about Black Trust UK and also just where do you think we're at in terms of black artists and um, activism right now? Black Trust came out of um, conversations similar to what Monica was saying um, amongst black actresses, basically saying this feeling of isolation. Um, we had an event last week, Thursday, where we collectively in a, in a Zoom room of 240 black artists agreed that we, we wanted to use the term global majority. So it's spreading. Um, yeah, it, I think the, 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 the feeling of isolation, you know, the, the, the racism, the misogyny, all the kind of isms and schisms that black women were facing within their artistry, they needed a safe space to be able to talk about it, to, re to realize it, to name it, and then to be able to heal it. So Latras, even though we are a grassroots um, support group, I use that term because literally the events that we curate and the workshops that we put out are a literal response to what is needed by the women. So um, I, I'm just the facilitator for that. So like last week, that was that was me facilitating a space because I could feel this real lots of individual conversations between writers and directors and and other actors wanting to connect and just being like, I literally just need a space to to talk about what's going on. How do we move forward? And I, I say that, you know, the artists, we are the griots, you know, we are the ones that will bear witness. We are the ones that give hope exactly what you were saying, Constanza, in terms of how hopeful. And I think in this moment in time, I know that a lot of artists were feeling hopeless and that, feel, that, that feeling of um, self-empowerment self was kind of, was fading or a needing to connect, you know, the, the need to be nourished. I think there's something I always say that, you know, I take inspiration from Audre Lorde who says, you know, there is absolute strength and liberation in community and that's all it is. You know, I, I grew up in a hair salon, so I was always surrounded by black women of multiple generations who I had to serve as the younger one and just sit and listen to stories. And we need stories. And I think for so long, um, you know, we've been going for three years. What we've just encouraged is for these women to validate their own experience. That was, that was it, first of all, to just know that what you've experienced is valid and that you deserve a voice and to make sure that you use it. We make the personal political first, first and foremost, but it's first of all acknowledging to what's connected. And all of our events are based around that. I feel like witnessing the awful murder of George Floyd and seeing so many institutions in this country saying they were in solidarity with black people, um, but they hadn't acknowledged um, the suffering that was happening on this soil right now. And there was a lot of conversation saying, oh, it happens over there, it doesn't happen here which further enraged people because the way that racism operates in this country is very different. So different, but it's of the same. It's, it's just a slightly different dialect, I think. Um, and, and I think that, that, like I say, there needed to be an acknowledgement and a validation of like, no, I've gone through this. Um, and, you know, to name the lives in the UK that have been taken on brutality or under the Men Mental Health Act and people being able to do the work and connect and be like, oh, Black Lives Matter here too. You know, we've been experiencing this, this thing where we feel like we've had to be so 
grateful or so thankful for the opportunities that we've been given. Um, and that has almost silenced a lot of people, especially being in like majority white spaces. So just having the courage and ultimately doing decolonial work within ourselves to heal ourselves, which ultimately is going to make us stronger artists, have stronger voices, which is going to stand the test of time, this moment that we're in now, which is not a moment. I believe, I believe it is, again, the adding on of a movement, the Black Panther movement that was happening in the 80s here as well, you know. So, um, yeah, I just want, I want people to feel unified and also celebrate in their difference as well. Yeah, system change. And I, think, I guess, Dexter, it's, it's a bit of a big question, but, but kind of snowballing on uh, what Sherelle said and Monica said, but beyond like the artist community, maybe, I know that you've been uh, on a lot of the marches um, here in the UK. What, what do you think um, can change? What would you like to see in active change? Any, any thoughts beyond the arts? Yeah, of course, you know, as you kind of said, it is a, it is a big thing. And I, and I think it's important to kind of say, I feel like it's um, a life's work that we're talking about um, here. And, you know, there is no quote unquote easy fix. What I think is, is that I think there's a few different answers, but, you know, I think at the moment I've had loads of inboxes from white people um, about a lot of white guilt and about, um, you know, they're sorry that they haven't looked at things in, in a particular way and they're sorry that they've not, um, you know, sort of like going back and recounting uh, times and spaces and um, thoughts and, and, and thinking of things that they, they wish they should have, they could have done and should have done and spoken out and X, Y, Z. So from that, from that uh, specific uh, perspective, um, which I'll be honest with you, like a lot of those inboxes sort of enraged me because... This isn't, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to hear your white guilt. Like, what I kind of advised them was to go out there, educate yourself, yeah? The spaces that you're in, um, use your white privilege in the spaces that you're in to call out other people's, um, um, you know, racism, prejudice, like, use that in the spaces. Um, and, and, and again, in whatever field of work you're in, um, arts, wherever you work in, in the institution, yeah, challenge the status quo and, and look at the um, infrastructure of where you work and risk, basically, risk losing your quote-unquote job or I'm being unpopular or any of those things. If you really are talking Black Lives Matter and you're really here for it and not because um, at the moment it's kind of like quote-unquote what people are talking about, then... Um, then yeah, and you're and you're an ally. Then 100. percent So there's 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 that angle, um, which I feel like uh, you know a lot of people. I, I understand. It's some of them. Some of them are feeling difficult and feeling awkward. And but you know, difficult and awkward is you know I've kind of been feeling that my whole entire life. So for me, I'm like, okay, go and do that work, whatever that is. Go and read, educate yourself, talk to each other, and talk to people. Um, fine, and if you're doing the work and, and you want to action stuff, then yeah, let's have that conversation, but don't come to me to find those solutions. Sometimes to, uh, to think of what we can do, action on a whole, sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes it is overwhelming, you know, because the systems is so, it's like being, it's like being in the sea and the current is so strong and we're having to sort of like fight against the current and sometimes you're tired and you just give up and you have to like go down the stream more, you know, you've got to, until you can get the energy to come back again. But what I think is that, you know, I don't mind doing that for the rest of my life. 
you know, because the younger generation who we pass the baton to, they can, they can continue the marathon. And it's a marathon. Thank you, Dexter. The last question is to Lenny, and, and I suppose it's got two parts, Lenny. The, the, the first part is that King Headley II is sometimes regarded as being uh, August Wilson's most difficult work, or per, uh, perhaps his um, bleakest. Uh, why do you think that is? Do you agree with it? And do you think there are moments of redemption in it? And then the second part of the question is picking up from what Dexter was just saying, which is looking about the future. So do you think there's hope for a more equal society? And where does that hope and change come from? Oh, that's a very, very good question. I think there is a sense of wasted potential. I mean, I've been listening to everybody talking and it's really extraordinary watching Dexter and Aaron every night and seeing these two bright entrepreneurial men who are deciding to go that way instead of that way. And that way with a loan and a, a space and somewhere to sell things that are legitimate is successful business. And that way is teething and winding up in jail and carrying guns to protect themselves. And it's like our young people um, do have those choices, watching Tonya deciding whether she's going to keep or, or, or get rid of her baby, and Ruby telling stories about being oppressed by patriarchal uh, drunken blokes back in the day when she was a singer. All of these things are about our society and about how we can action change. And what I do feel is that this idea of presenting a narrative to an audience, you've got to think about it in terms of the meta, the meta nature of it all, is the way we move society on, you know. As Sherelle says, these stories are really, really important. And just by the act of telling them, of bringing them to a stage or a space, we are showing people an alternative. This is an alternative universe. This stuff is happening, but you can learn from this. All of these things that we create with our art are things we can learn from. So I think the redemption doesn't just come from the moral of the story. The redemption comes from the fact that in Stratford, where I saw a guy who'd just been stabbed when I came out of the station on my way to work, where three weeks earlier somebody had been shot, where I saw an audience of people watching this and nodding their heads and maybe saying, that's not going to happen to me, or that's not going to happen to my child, or I'm going to think another way or go another way. The art can present a narrative from which we can learn. And going forward, you know, if I cut my hair and shake my beard, I look like George Floyd. So that's what I've been dealing with ever since I saw that film. I look like him. My brother Hilton looks like him. My brother Seymour looks like him. When I'm watching that film, I'm looking at my family, my brothers. And I've been feeling that in my heart, like Dexter must have been, like, Aaron, like all of us must have been feeling. When you're a person of colour, when you're black and you're watching these films of people being tased and oppressed and dragged out of their cars and tased and kicked and pushed over, you're watching yourself. And I was talking to my friend Marcus about this the other day, and we were talking about this feeling of disempowerment, of disenfra disenfranchisement, this feeling of ultra marginalization marginalization and what this global movement is doing is taking the center space which is what august does with his work every time he came with a new thing he went 
boom, here I am, and guess what? I'm going to be on Broadway. And guess what? Here's the ghetto. And guess what? Here's ghetto people. And guess what? This is what we're dealing with every single day. And for that audience, which I think was predominantly white, they would sit there like this and go, oh my God, what's August coming with now? And what he was coming with now is the truth. And through truth, through narrative, through this extraordinarily meta way of telling you the way we are by being ultimately truthful and talking about slavery, talking about the things nobody wants to talk about. Suddenly you're saying, this is a roadmap to the way out, but you've got to listen. And here's what, you know, I know that when they first did King Headley, it was over four hours long. And when we did it, it was three hours and 40. And I know there are shorter versions of it, but it's almost like we had this story and we had to tell it. And you couldn't shorten it. You couldn't. You had to tell the story. And if you're sitting in that audience, male, female, gay, straight, from the prison industrial complex or not, you would sit there and your ears would be opened because when Stool Pigeon started that preaching and that rapping at the end of the play, mixing up the Bible and Greek myth and this extraordinarily onomatopoetic rant, you know, we had to open our hearts and our ears and listen. And that's what August was about. He's, you know, I work with a global majority. We used to call it diversity lobby group, but we don't call it that anymore. But we're trying to come up with global solutions. We're trying to think of what can we do to have redemption, to force change. And you know what's great? The young people are doing it. The young women are doing it. The young gays, the young straights, the young trans, they're doing it. They're out there. They're showing us by example what to do. And okay, people disagree with statue toppling and burning down Target or the Apple store in Brooklyn or whatever. But you know what? Like Kimberly said the other day, if we don't own, if we don't own these things, we're going to burn them down because they're not ours anyway. We're going to get your attention. You're not listening to us? Oh, look, you are now. And here's what we've got to say now that you're listening. But it's important to shape the solutions and shape, shape opinion. And like Sherelle says, talk. And by talking, come up with a roadmap. This doesn't change without a roadmap. This doesn't come without solutions. And if we can think of a way to shape solutions and shape a roadmap forward, then like August's plays, we will have done something really important and George Floyd's life will not have been in vain. Thank you, Lenny. Um, thank you so much, all of you, for speaking so powerfully and so openly. Um, so, Lenny, Dexter, Sherelle, Constanza, Monica, on behalf of Nadia and myself, thank you for joining in the revival. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>